Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the inland Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together, we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. Today, we're here with Jesse Brunner on Fifth Gen Farms outside of Elmira, Washington. Thanks so much for having me out today, Jesse. Excited to talk with you about your on-farm trials. Oh, I'm happy to have you, Carol. So would you share a bit about yourself, your farm, and who you farm with? Sure. So I've been farming for a little over 10 years. Um, I'm fifth generation of my family to take over the farm, hence the name. Um, I took over from my dad. Uh, he, he's in retirement now, so it's, it's pretty much my show at this point. Um, the area that I farm in, we're about a 12-inch annual rainfall zone. Most of our crops are fall seeded following a year of fallow, but that's definitely not how we always do it. Excellent. Looking forward to hearing more about that. Would you describe a bit more about your farming conditions, your soil, and your standard rotation? I guess you kind of spoke to that, but what, what crops do you grow out here? Um, and some of your management history. So our, our soil is mostly silt loam. I mean, I would describe it as a kind of a medium textured soil. Um, primarily, I'm a canola farmer. Um, I also grow a large amount of wheat, and then occasionally, you know, barley, triticale, peas. Um, these are all things that I've grown in the past and continue to grow as the conditions present themselves. Would you describe some of your management goals and how they might be different across your whole farm, by field, and year to year? So my, my long-term management goal for everything is to remain productive and profitable in the long term. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm the fifth generation. I want this farm to be around for my kids should they choose to farm. So what can I do to put us on the right path for that happening? You know, I look, I look at each field on a, a case-by-case and year-by-year basis and try and decide, you know, what is it I'm trying to address in this field? What are its challenges? What are its strengths? You know, and that affects things like my crop rotation choices, my herbicide choices, and just overall management. The farm has been no-till since about uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, you know, my, my dad started that, and I kind of you know, picked up the torch where he, he left off and have continued down that path, you know, trying to take things to, to the next level, take those next steps, um, just to kind of see. It's, it's a process of continual improvement. So it's, it's about the journey, not the destination. I have picked up some ground in the past few years. Um, some of it has been no-till prior to me, me managing it, some of it has not. So uh, you know, part of that is there's, there's a process trying to transition, especially the ground that hasn't been no-till, um, to move it into no-till and, and try and improve the soil quality and, and make it more productive. And that's definitely been a learning experience for me. Um, I wouldn't say I have it all figured out yet, but it's just kind of a, you know, learning on the go. Um, for each of my fields, I have management goals for everything, whether that's weed control, yield goals, soil health. Each year I, I approach each field on a case-by-case basis and, and trying to decide what's going to be the best path for it going forward. You know, you mentioned the ground that you took over that wasn't in no-till. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about some of what you've learned and how you've used your on-farm trials to transition that um, into no-till, as well as what are some of the challenges that maybe you've encountered with long-term no-till? Um, especially with your crop diversification. 
you know, every field is an experiment every year. There's always always things to try, and uh, sometimes those are more uh, focused. Like I'm, I have strip trials in quite a few of my fields every year, but other field, like the whole field, might just be an experiment too. Um, so with with the ground that I've taken on recently that hasn't been in, in no-till, you know, that 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 ground has been in nothing but wheat and nothing but tillage for 80 years. And so like I, my first step in my process is to try and build up surface residue and soil carbon. And while at the same time, like I, I want to avoid putting wheat on those fields because that's all they've had for forever. So like one field in particular, we started off with some spring barley. And then this year I had it in winter triticale, which aren't super different from wheat, but they're, they're at least somewhat different. And I'm, I'm trying to build up my, my residue levels. And one of the challenges I've run into with no-till in a dryland environment is uh, what I call the no-till suck cycle, which is where when you have a piece of ground, which could be as small as a half an acre or as large as a whole, whole field, where you don't, you don't get a good stand. And then the next year, you don't have a lot of residue left, which makes it harder to get a stand the next crop around. And then this, this cycle repeats itself. And it becomes very difficult to break. I mean, a lot of times we need a really wet year so we can come in there and, and get a good stand established, regardless of how bad the soil conditions were up to that point. You know, that, that's really best case scenario, but, but waiting on that happening, waiting on the weather is definitely not, not an easy path to success. So that's where choices like, should I put spring crop in because it's easier to get a stand? Or... If I do have a poor stand, do I go in and patch those places in in the spring, even though they're not going to make me any money? I guess that's one of my biggest experiments is trying to manage that that suck cycle and break out of it. Thanks for sharing that. It sounds like soil carbon is harming your residue. is a big part of your management goals. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what you've seen that do? On well, the, the biggest challenge we have in no-till is having seed zone moisture in the fall. You know, it's not uncommon for us to have the rain shut off in late May, or June, and you know we don't seed until August or September, and so having moisture to seed into is is definitely the biggest challenge we face. In some years we get lucky with that and get you know August rains, and a lot of years we don't. And so a lot of what I do is about trying to have that that good seed zone moisture and leaving residue on the surface is definitely the easiest way to do that. It just becomes really hard in those low productive areas because there's not a lot of residue to begin with. And then, so there's not a lot of moisture to hold on to, and then you get pulled into the suck cycle. So, um, changes that I've made to try and preserve that residue is, uh, oh, quite a few years ago, I switched over from a conventional header to a stripper header. And so I, I, I leave my stubble tall all through the winter. The other side of it is, is my highly productive areas, I get too much draw, and that leads to seeding challenges. So trying to manage that through variety selection, and then in my rotations, like I, I don't like to put the same crop on a field back to back. So it's it's alternating between canola and wheat, you know, and then maybe barley or peas or something. Um, and maintaining service residue is, is a big factor in my mind as to what crop I'm going to put on a field next. So when you have crops like peas where there's very little service residue left, you know, maybe we should go in there with some wheat next time. But if the seeding conditions are great, you know, maybe I could go in there with canola. You know, that's something that I am yet to try. And at the same time, I'm also trying to balance market conditions because what crop is going to be most profitable definitely changes year to year. So there's, there's just a lot of, a lot of things to juggle. You know, a lot of sometimes competing priorities to try and manage. 
Yeah. You guys definitely make a lot of different decisions and have to be experts in a lot of different things in order to make your farm work, especially as a solo operator. What experiments or trials do you currently have going on your farm or that you're wrapping up from this last year? Well, so from this last year, um, I have kind of an ongoing trial with uh, recrop winter wheat. Um, last year, I did some strip trials using a fungicide on the canola at blooming. Uh, I had some strip trials involving a uh, AMF seed inoculant. Um, every year is always experiments with optimizing my, my chem fallow during the summer. Um, herbicide resistance is a big concern. And so I'm, I'm constantly trying to find ways to manage herbicide resistance while not spending too much money. Um, a big part of that this last year has been uh, I've added a weed it to my equipment lineup. I've used a, a neighbor's weed it for several years, but this year I was actually able to get my own, which definitely makes it easier to experiment with. So I've been playing around a lot with that in terms of herbicide mixes and timings. Um, I learned a lot of things this year. I'm excited to try some different things next year. But uh, yeah, those, those are my, my big trials I had going on this year. Uh, for this next year, uh, I'm going to be playing a lot with my fertility management, uh, both in terms of timing and rates. Um, I switched my, my drill over from a dry starter fertilizer to liquid, which gives me more flexibility into what I can put down. So we're going to be experimenting with that this coming year. In the spring, I also uh, plan to repeat my sorghum trial that I did this year. That one still remained to be harvested, so we'll see how it turned out. But uh, regardless of, of how it comes, I'm going to try some again next year, too. So you mentioned your Weed It. Mm -hmm. Some people are on Team Weed It already. I think there's a lot of interest in this technology, especially in the dryland fallow. Well, I think to get the most out of the Weed It, you, you need to plan for how you're going to use it before you even get it out of the shed in the spring. You know, that's things like I'm going to apply a, uh, a residual herbicide this fall in my fields that we planted to wheat next year, which will hopefully allow me to go straight to the weed it next spring instead of having to start off with a, a broadcast application. So I'm excited to do that for this coming year. You know, I, I built my, my weed it sprayer myself. I started with a you know 20-year-old flexi-coil wheeled boom sprayer. You know, I spent the last year looking at other people's weed it systems, both locally and you know, there's tons of weed it systems down in Australia. And so I had a really good idea what I wanted my system to be when it was done. And so I spent a lot of time getting it to that point, you know, and then once you start using things then you realize, well, this thing didn't work out or this thing did work out, this needs to be a little different. So um, the biggest thing I ran into initially was there, there's limitations in how far away the nozzles can be from the cameras on the weed it. And so you can't use the stock nozzle mounting location on the, the flexi-coil sprayer I had. So that required me, required me to pretty much totally redesign the booms, move everything around. The weed it is something that it has to be part of your entire system, and you have to make choices on how to manage your fields before you go in there with the weed it to optimize its use. I think one of the mistakes I made this year was I didn't get aggressive enough with my rates fast enough. So the, the tricky part about the weed it is, especially in your spring glyphosate, is it doesn't kill the weeds quickly. And so if you have some bigger weeds and you didn't use strong enough rates, um, they'll get sprayed the second time around with the weed it, even though they, they, are, they are going to die. So you're hitting stuff twice, it doesn't need to be hit twice. And so I think I actually would have saved money by using more herbicide earlier. 
So th- those are probably my biggest takeaways from this year. Uh, next year, I also plan to change up my herbicide mixes with the weed. It's um, trying to get some different mode of actions in there, some different combinations. I, I, I love the weed. It, it definitely does what it claims to do. You know, I average 80% reduction in my herbicide. You know, and that gives me the freedom and flexibility to use herbicide mixes that would not be economically viable any other way. So nice. I, I want to fully leverage that in the future. From what I understand, um, you're really into your nozzle selection as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the nozzle selection on the weed, it really is challenging because, you know, almost all the nozzles made out there are not appropriate for a weed due to its narrow spacing. Um, since you have nozzles on 10-inch or 7-inch spacing, uh, with the broadcast sprayer, your overlap between your nozzles is a good thing. With the weed, it, it, it's not because... When only one nozzle comes on, if you have a lot of overlap, you're, you're effectively getting only a fraction of the desired rate. And so finding nozzles with a narrow spray pattern has been challenging, uh, especially since most of the ones that are available, you have very limited choices when it comes to droplet size. And so when I'm spraying glyphosate and it's hot out, I don't want to be putting out mist. I want to use low carrier volumes with large droplets. And finding nozzles to do that has been a real challenge. Um, there are some coming out of the market now and, and uh, I was able to find some for this year that have worked pretty well for me, but, uh, it's definitely something I'm going to continue to play around with going forward. Um, one of the other things I'm excited to try with the weed it is you can actually kind of put it in a, uh, I call it a dual mode or hybrid mode where it applies a blanket rate of herbicide. And then when it detects a weed, it applies a much higher rate. And so one of the biggest drawbacks to the weed is, is you, you do have to spray more frequently. There is a, a minimum size of weed that it can detect. And it's pretty small, but it's not nothing. And so, you know, instead of having to spray every four or five weeks, I have to spray every three or four. Well, maybe if I applied a low blanket rate of herbicide to get those weeds that have just emerged and are too small to be detected, and then only apply a higher rate where there's larger weeds, maybe I can stretch out that interval between sprays to what it used to be before with the broadcast sprayer. And you can go to the lake more? And I can go to the lake more. You know, the, the challenge there is there's a cost to everything. It, it costs me money to run over the ground with the weed, it, even if I don't apply any product. And if I do a blanket rake, well, that has a cost associated with it too. So how, how do we balance those numbers out to get me the, 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 optimal, the optimal procedure that'll give me the most bang for the buck? Well, that's a great segue into um, you know this next question. How do you determine your return on investment of a new practice, and if it is something that you want to carry forward? Yeah, I think the the best, the uh, easiest way to determine your ROI, you have to start with having good numbers for what it costs you to do your current practices. And so, I love spreadsheets more than any person probably should. And so, I, I have a spreadsheet for every field where I document everything I do, and I try to assign a cost to that. You know, not only in just my my fuel burned or my man hours, my machine hours, my depreciation, you know, everything. I, I try to have my cost of productions very, very well worked out. And so then when I want to try something, I can use strip trials and see like, well, what, what did this gain me in terms of, of yield? Yield's obviously the easiest thing to, to measure. You know, pretty much everybody has yield monitors in their combine and it's easy to go out there and cut a test strip and see what it yielded. Um, when it comes to things like herbicide, that's a little more difficult because it, it's it's hard to say for sure, did this herbicide work better than that one? Even if you do strip trials, um, it's it, it's a little more difficult to quantify that. 
but that is where things like strip trials do pay off. So I do try and get out there, you know, maybe got to walk the field and count weeds. What are those things that you are looking for in monitoring over? Uh, it sounds like it kind of depends on what you're trying. It depends on what you're trying. Um, <clears throat> uh, for example, well, I guess this is something else I experimented this year is I uh, tested some different adjuvants with, with glyphosate. And so I, I was lucky I had a field of canola stubble, and this was in June. And so I had lots of my challenging weeds out there. There was a lot of uh, prickly lettuce and volunteer canola and mustard. And so I, I have a small sprayer on a, on a loader tractor. And so I went out there and sprayed two ounces of Roundup on those just to see what would happen. And it's actually surprising how much weeds you can kill with just two ounces of Roundup. And I had three different adjuvants, and it was very easy to see the difference in performance at that lower rate of herbicide. And that, that had helped me kind of narrow down which adjuvant I want to stick with going forward. So I'm going to throw you under the bus a bit and, and say that a couple of years ago at the Direct Seed Conference, you were on a panel, and um, something that really stood out was that as we talk about all of these different practices, whether they be for, you know, optimizing yield or soil health, whatever the management goal is, um, there's always, you know, or products, there's always new products coming out. Um, you know, it really stood out to me the way you said, what's important is to try things on your farm and to make sure you get the most meaningful results. Mm -hmm. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I think one of the things that frustrates me most when talking to other growers, you know, about things they've tried is you get different fields, different years, and I got totally different results. How can you expect to learn anything if you, you can't control your variables? And so you know, when I do my trials, I really try to control as many of the variables as possible. I, I do a lot of strip trials, so it's the same field, the same year, strips right next to each other. I don't just do one strip of something. You know, I try and get some replications in there. And then uh, things like I, I have scales on my bank out wagon, which has been amazing. The, the yield monitor in the combine is really good, but it is definitely not a scale. And so that helps me go out there and get good data for my results. You know, and like I said previously, yield, yield is probably the easiest thing to check, but there's lots of other metrics out there too. Um, I've, I've added a protein monitor to my combine, which gives me another, another thing to look at in the crop. Um, and, you know, for things like, like herbicides, there really is no replacement for going out there and just, just walk in the field. But the same thing, I'll, I'll try and find a field that'll give me good conditions for getting good data off of it. Excellent. And you actually worked with many of my colleagues at the university um, on various trials on your farm as well. It sounds like maybe they're rubbing off on you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think, I think the word's gotten out that I'm a glutton for punishment when it comes to these kind of things. So <laughs> I've worked with... Uh, Richard's community in the past to do uh, cover crop trials, and that was really informative. Uh, unfortunately, cover crop doesn't seem to be real applicable to my area just yet, but learning that, I mean, a lot of times learning that something doesn't work is just as valuable as learning that it does. And so there, there's been lots of opportunities in the past where I've worked with the research community to help kind of figure things out such as that. And that, that's probably like the, the one off the top of my head that jumps out to me the most was the cover crop trials. But I've also done a lot of variety trials um, which those are always interesting, um, mostly with canola. Uh, we've, we've done some experiments with uh, piola in the past, which also has been very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm 
optimistic that someone's going to continue that research going forward because I feel like that's a crop that has has potential for this area. It sounds like, you know, you do use these best practices, the strip trials and the replication and, you know, the data that's important to you. Um, how do you balance and plan for the time and building that into your workflow on a working farm? I, I think you, at the end of the day, you just have to make it a priority. I mean, when it comes to a lot of things, people are like, oh, I don't have time for that. And really what you're saying is, is that's not important enough for me to spend the time doing it. And if you want to do trials and you want to do research, you just have to make them a priority. And they are a pain in the butt. I mean, when I'm out there, if I have a trial that's something that's implemented during seeding, you know, that's a big hassle. And I don't want to do it, but I just force myself to. And then it comes time to harvest it. And, I, and like, there have been times where I'll do a trial and I get the harvest. And I'm like, nope. I don't got time for this. And every time I do that, I'm always disappointed later. I'm like, I did the work, I created the trial, and then when it came time to gather the data, I just didn't do it. And so it, it really just comes down to making it a priority for yourself and just setting the side, time aside to do it. And making sure your, your trials are, are well well labeled and indicated. That's always a bummer too when you get out there and it's like, well, I know I have strip trials here somewhere. I guess I should have put flags out here, or I guess I should have written down what the flags indicate. That, that's definitely happened to me too. So um, I, I do try and be very diligent in my note-taking. Um, my phone really is an extension of my brain. Pretty much everything I do gets written down in my phone so I can reference it later and don't have to try and remember, well, which, which trial did I do in the first strip and, and so on. Your protein monitor, is that part of some fertility work that you were doing? Yep. Yeah. I was able to get a protein monitor um, as part of doing some fertility management work. And like that's been tremendously useful. Um, I really feel like that closes the loop on, on dialing in our, our fertility rates and it and helps tremendously. I mean, fertility is our large, single largest expense. So anything we can do to do that better. And that doesn't necessarily mean applying less fertility. It just means about applying it in a more productive fashion. Um, I've been variable rate applying my fertility for quite a few years now. I definitely feel like that's the way to go. It, it's it's easier for us here in the Pacific Northwest versus you know places like the Midwest. In my fields, the the highly productive part of the field is the highly productive part of the field year after year after year. You know, other places in the north in the in North America, that's not always the case. Sometimes their draw bottoms are really high yielding, but then they have a wet year and everything floods out and then, then they don't yield so well or they get a lot of disease pressure. So I, I understand why variable rate application isn't such a big deal other places, but for here, I think it's huge, especially considering the high amount of variability we have within each, within our fields. Yeah. I mean, up here, it seems like you don't have as much variation in topography as around Pullman, but you definitely still have plenty. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely not Palouse Hills, but we do have hills. And I have, you know, my highly eroded areas and I have other places where the soil is really deep. You know, looking at most of my fields, my my highly productive areas yield five times as much as my low productivity areas. Crop is a, crops have variable rate removal. And so that's why I think we need variable rate application. Yeah, that makes good sense. What things do you do now as part of your standard management that started as trials? Oh, I, basically everything. I mean, everything starts as a trial somewhere. It's hard for me to pick out just one thing because there, there, there's constant little refinements. Like uh, 
the even the direction that I seed and harvest in, you know, that started out as a trial, as you know, what what's the optimal direction to do this, and you know, that that has relevance for me because of my my crops are pretty much all seeded with disc drills, and the direction the straw is lying on the ground impacts their ability to cut through it. So I'm very deliberate about the direction that I harvest, and then the direction that I seed, and the direction that I spray. And you know, that, that's just one example. I literally, literally everything I do started with an experiment somewhere, trying to figure out what was going to be the right choice. So you mentioned your drills. Mm -hmm. Do you have one favorite drill or do you have a variety of drills? So uh, I have three different drills. And it, it's kind of different horses for different courses. Um, I'm a strong believer that there, you're not going to find one drill that works best in all, in all situations. You know, our, our seeding conditions are highly variable, whether that's just seeding in the fall versus seeding in the spring or seeding different crops. Uh, the real challenge is definitely canola. It's got that little itty bitty seed and it does not have a lot of push. And so the, the biggest things we've learned with canola is you can't have a drill that packs over the seed. So I have one drill that all I do with it is seed my winter canola. Uh, and I use a different drill for seeding my wheat and pretty much everything else. And that, that gives me the flexibility to tailor each piece of equipment to its specific job and hopefully get the best results. Even with that, everything's still a compromise. There is no perfect drill. I, I love and hate my drills, you know, on a seasonal basis. <laughs> um, what are some of the features you love about your canola drill? Um, so my, my canola drill is a John Deere 1890 that I, uh, I rebuilt and respaced on 20-inch spacing. And uh, I, I love the accuracy of the seed placement. Uh, it has row cleaners on it, which was the main motivation for getting that drill. Um, due to using the stripper header, I'm typically seeding my canola into some pretty heavy wheat stubble. And so I want something that can move that out of the seed row. And the row cleaners do a pretty good job. It's not perfect, but they are definitely, definitely help a lot. And so the, the ability to move that straw out of the seed row has been hugely beneficial. And that, that's really its claim to fame. That combined the fact that it does not pack any soil over the seed. It just... It has a closing wheel at the back of the opener that kind of kicks some loose dirt over enough to close the trench to keep things from drying out, but doesn't pack the seed at all. And that allows me to seed canola. I can seed canola over three inches deep and it still comes up just fine, which is handy on our drier years, which this year has not been very fortunate, but more often than not, that is the case. It sounds like you've put a lot of thought into your drill if you've rebuilt the whole thing. What's one thing you would really like to try, but can't right now because of some limitation, whether that's equipment or precipitation or um, a lease agreement? Um, well, you know, there's a lot of things I would love to try. Cows. Um, not those, but there, there are many other things. We've had cattle in the past. I would love to have them on my ground if they were someone else's problem. Oh, sorry, what are things that you would like to try? Uh, you know, I would be curious to try uh, sort of like different crops, um, sunflowers. I think those are really great. You know, the limitation right now is I don't have any on-farm storage. And so when you harvest those, I, I can't just haul them into my local elevator that's five miles away. So they, they have to go to Spokane. That's at least an hour and a half away. So without on-farm storage, there's really no way for me to, to grow those. Um, actually be curious about some of these low disturbance um, soil compaction 
tools, you know, like a E. coli till. I know I have a compaction layer down there. I don't know how much it impacts my yields. And without having one of those tools to go do some trials, I, I don't have a good way of finding that out. Um, Sounds like you could talk to your conservation district on some sort of equipment share. Yeah, that might be one way to do it. I, I do have neighbors that have these tools. So unfortunately, due to all the precipitation we've had this year, this isn't going to be a good year to try it out. But going forward, it is something I'd be curious to experiment with. Uh, there, there's always, you know, different herbicide mixes. Um a lot of a lot of things with my fallow that that's a, always in a constant state of refinement, and then like my residue management. Um, right now, I, I mow my stubble in the spring. If I don't mow the stubble, eventually it comes back to bite me. It won't be that next year, but you know maybe the crop after the next one, it, it comes back to get me. And so trying to find the I, I don't want to I don't want to mow that stubble any more than I have to. So I've, I've played around with a lot of different uh, stubble heights when I'm mowing, a lot of different mowing timings. Uh, this last year I actually mowed things twice going opposite directions and that worked awesome. It's just slow and expensive. So trying to dial that in. You know, I always have ideas. Maybe uh, if I could do a variable rate map for my mower height. You know, there is a, there's equipment out there that can adjust the height on the fly ran off of your, your GPS system, so that'd be a cool thing to apply to the mower. I don't know. I have lots of ideas. I believe you. That's great. Thank you. Uh, I haven't heard you talk a lot about soil biology. How do you think about your soil biology in terms of your management? Uh, it's definitely something that's important to me. You know, I, I, I want to have robust soil biology because I think that, that helps me in the long run. You know, if you take care of the soil, it'll take care of you. And that, that is one of the reasons I switched from dry starter to liquid, because that lets me put things down like molasses and humic and fulvic acid. Um, lets me incorporate things in the soil that I haven't been able to do in the past. Yeah, we've been considering looking at compost tea going forward. And so, you know, that's something I'd like to experiment with. Um, yeah, I, I think the big thing is, is acknowledging that it's not dirt, it's soil. It's, it's a living, breathing thing, too. And so you, you need to be cognizant of what it needs and trying to take care of it. It's a vital living ecosystem. Exactly. Excellent. Um, what are your biggest barriers to trying new things on your farm? You know, largely it's time. And it, it just kind of depends on what it is. Time is the big one. You have to... So they have to make it a priority, and, and sometimes it doesn't matter how much priority is, there just there isn't time to do it. Um, then the other things, it's it's equipment. You know, in, in the case of sunflowers, I, I don't have don't have on farm storage. Um, with the soil compaction, I, I don't have an inline ripper. So you know, I, I do try and find things that I that I can try each year, and I, I you know throughout the year I, I have my list on my phone of all the things to try for next year, and a lot of those get implemented, and some of them don't. And, you know, they might wait. For, might take me another year before I get around to try it, but I don't know it. The financial limitations are always there. Some things are cheap and easy. A lot of things aren't. So you just have to decide how much effort do I really want to put into this. You know, I've I've made some very expensive mistakes, and I'll probably make some more in the future. But that that's just kind of part of the game. Well, I think at one point. You mentioned something about your decision-making process around trying things as well and, and how you know when to try something in the first place, 
kind of in that cost-benefit analysis versus then also carrying it forward into more of an adopted practice? Well, that really is the trick to farming. I think we always like to simplify things down to the point it's like, okay, this practice is good or bad. Should I do this or should I not? And it, it, it's not that simple. Uh, a lot of these practices, they might be the right thing to do 80% of the time or 50% of the time. And so it, it's not as simple as does this work or is this the right thing to do? It's figuring out when does this work? When is this the right thing to do? How can I know? And you know, the hard part is a lot of this is determined by what kind of year we have from a weather standpoint. And you're not going to know whether something was the right thing to do until long after it's already been done. So, you know, I, I try and look at things and, you know, assign values. What is the probability this is the right thing to do? What is the benefit going to be? What is the cost going to be? Whether it's successful or unsuccessful in that particular year, you know, and try and weigh all those things out and, and chart a path that way. Sounds like you'd be a good person to advise some decision support tools. Maybe. I think I know a guy. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do love spreadsheets. And I, well, and that's one of the things I try and do. I, I try and track all these things as much as possible so that I can look at numbers and, and have some, some basis for which I can make a decision. It's not just, well, I feel this happened or that seemed like it worked well this year, so it'll probably work well next year. Like on my dry years, these are the things I do. On my wet years, these are the things I do. Stack the odds in your favor. Stack the odds in my favor. I think probably the best example of that would be like putting in spring crop. Uh, spring crop is probably twice, well, I, I know it has twice the yield variability as my fall seeded crops do. Um, and when it's good, it's really good. I, I can make more on a per acre per year basis with spring crop than I can with fall seeded crops. But when it's bad, it's really bad. So what can I look at when it comes time to make that decision of should I put spring crop in this field or should I follow it? to try and you know, st stack the deck in my favor. And so I know, well, at this point, I have a greater than 50% chance that this crop is going to be very good, so I should put it in. Or, nope, at this point, I can tell my odds of success are low. And while it's still possible, it's not a risk I want to take, so we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's also why I don't like getting stuck into rigid crop rotations. You know, I like to approach everything on a year-by-year -year basis, you know, what are the market conditions for this crop? What are the weather conditions? What are my probabilities for success? And not just be like, oh, well, I already decided four years ago this is what I was going to put in when this, we got to this point in the calendar and the decision's already been made and I have no flexibility. Well, with that flexibility comes other trade-offs, like making sure you have good herbicide records. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's things like I, I try to avoid any herbicides that have a really long plant plaque restrictions. Um, just because I, I don't want to get to a point where like, man, it should be really great to put a lot of canola in this year, but I can't because the herbicides I used made that impossible. And so that, that definitely limits me. There's, there's herbicides that are very commonly used that I don't just because I, I, I don't like the restrictions going forward. Also on that, the spring crop, you did mention your, your recrop and your experimentation around how to reduce the number of years in fallow and maybe mm -hmm. only have to fallow every one out of three years instead of every other year. Yeah, I mean, the weed it makes fallow a lot more economical and a lot more effective, but if I didn't have to fallow at all, that'd be great. My goal is to, you know, to grow as much canola as possible. The problem is you can't put canola on canola. You can get away with it for a year or two, but I don't like the practice and I haven't done it. So 
right now, typically I'm growing winter wheat and then fallow and then canola and then fallow. And it'd be really great to kind of shorten that rotation a little bit and get from one canola crop every four years down to one canola crop every three. Spring wheat would let me do that. If I followed the canola with the spring wheat crop, you know, then I could follow that and go back into canola again. But spring crops are unreliable and just some years it's not appropriate for them. So that's why I've been experimenting with recrop winter wheat. Uh, I just have my third crop of that put in this fall and it's looking pretty good. Um, the crop I grew two years ago was great. This last year's crop was not so great. So there's, there's a lot of experimentation there trying to figure out how to use that crop, which is something that hasn't been traditionally used on this farm. Hopefully I can figure it out. And if I get to a point where most of the wheat I grow is recrop winter wheat following canola, that'd be fantastic. What's the most fun thing about trying new stuff on your farm? Yeah, there's a lot of fun things about it. I, I, I think it's, it's seeing those things that work. Um, you know, I, I may try 10 different things and three of them will be total failures. Five of them will be no difference, but then two, two will be really promising. So it's, it's exciting to find that, you know, 20% that it does work out really well and, and is going to change how I do things going forward. You know, I feel like farming is a constant game of trying to find these little incremental improvements. It's, it's not like I did something and I gained 20%. It's more about finding 10 things that gave me 2%. It's the cumulative effect of all those little, little incremental improvements that do add up to a lot. You just, you just got to go out there and work for it and find them. You know, you're talking about the big improvements or big differences or high variation in, in things that you try. What is the role of yield stability in your management? I mean, that's always always a goal. We'd love to have yield stability. The, the challenging part is, is you know, the, the number one thing that affects my yield is the weather. And it, it's hard to do much about that. I, I do think it can be managed for to a degree. So that's things like I've, I've shifted my, my seeding date in the fall earlier, and I, I keep moving it up every year as much as possible. You know, and then part of that motivation is I'm trying to beat the heat in June. So if it's going to be hot in June, well, if my crop's farther along before we get there, you know, that decreases my susceptibility to the weather in the early summer. So if you could ask a question to the research community, what is your most burning question that could be answered in that space? Yeah, I don't know if I have like one single biggest question so much as it's a lot of little questions. You know, I'm curious about things such as what's the optimal seeding date and seeding rate? What can we use to try and determine that? Because I suspect it's not going to be the same thing year after year after year. You know, how do different varieties affect that, both for canola and for wheat? Uh, looking at our fertility management, um, we have these tools for determining what is the so-called optimal rate of fertility. But, you know, there's a lot. I think those are pretty simplistic and they don't take into account things like, well, if fertilizer is cheaper, should we use more of it due to the fact that our soil doesn't, our, our soil tends to hold on to our fertility a lot better than it does in other places in North America. So, you know, maybe we should try and bank some of that. Um, organic matter. Organic matter. Um, you know, or do we have the yield response curves to facility that the tools say we do? Or is that something that's changed over time? Is that something that's affected by variety? You know, trying to get these things dialed in better for each specific field. Whereas right, right, right now we're using formulas that are applied to all of the Pacific Northwest. 
on there's a huge amount of variability in the Pacific Northwest. Mm. So that's kind of a fun, a lot of that, that site-specific information, you know, and, and how, how much do we fine-tune that both on the farm and as a, at a regional level is definitely one of potentially the challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for sharing that. Well, I feel like that's the direction that agriculture is going to go. We're going to get the ability to manage things on a lot more granular level. I mean, we used to fertilize a fixed rate, so it was done on a field-by-field basis. You know, I don't farm field-by-field anymore. I farm acre-by-acre. And as technology improves, we're just going to continue to shrink the size at which we can manage our fields on. You know, all the way down to at some point I expect we'll be farming on the plant-by-plant acre. Yeah, that may be a long ways off in the future, but that's definitely the direction things are going. And when you have that ability, that, that level of control and flexibility, you know, it, it's going to be pretty awesome. You think that's, if your kids come back to the farm, you think that's their future? I do. I mean, just things like you look at salad imagery or drone imagery, you know, it used to be a 10 meter pixel size with satellites, you know, and that's come down a long ways. And now that we have drone inventory, you know, that can get down just about to the individual plant scale. It's, it's definitely headed in that direction. And so, you know, things like uh, PWM controlled nozzles, we can do per nozzle rate control. So pretty soon we're going to be able to apply our inputs on a lot more granular level with a, with a level of control we haven't had in the past. And, and a lot of these different things we're doing are, are, are trying to help take some of the risk out of the things that you can't control. And again, it, it's, it's a process, it's a journey, it's made up of a lot of little different things, um, that there is no one huge thing that fixes it all. You just have to keep working at it. Oh, that sounds like a good note to end the interview on. Do you have anyone you would like to nominate to be on the podcast? Sure. I would nominate Brady Hayden. Okay. I'll look forward to following up with that. Thank you so much for sharing your experience of your on-farm trials with me today and with our listeners. Um, Really glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. As always, a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.